Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is founder and executive director of the Energy for Growth Hub, through which he created and incubated a network of researchers and advocates working to promote large-scale energy systems for job creation. Todd Moss uh, was also a non-resident fellow at several research institutions, including the Center for Global Development at the Colorado School of Mines. In government, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Africa at the State Department during President Bush's administration. Todd is also an author of several books. Todd, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast, and I appreciate the opportunity to pick your brain. Really wonderful to be with you, Sheila. Thanks for having me. That's wonderful. So I I thought we'd just uh, start uh, with your own uh, views. You argue that gas will shape the future of emerging market economies. I wonder whether uh, you could explain how you see that in the entire transition to clean energy uh, environment. Sure. So, you know, I think all economies want to respond to the latest energy technologies. Uh, Wind and solar in particular have gotten really cheap. Um, So a lot of countries, you know, all countries want to exploit the cheapest sources of particularly for electricity. Um, But in many markets, uh, you need to balance wind and solar with either hydro or geothermal or gas. And in a lot of emerging markets, which are um, which have their own natural gas resources, many of those countries want to use natural gas to build peaker plants and other other uh, downstream gas facilities that they could use uh, to balance wind and solar and uh, to enable them to have a reliable, low cost energy system to help them meet uh, their development goals. So uh, if you think about that, uh, uh, you know, set of circumstances, then do you see transition to clean energy per se as the main driver uh, of economic growth, or is it just a function of a net growth in demand for energy worldwide? Well, we we are seeing massive increases in energy demand worldwide, worldwide, particularly in Asia, but also in in Africa, Latin America. Um, even in some of the um, more industrialized regions like North America and Europe, you are seeing a transition, say, from um, you know internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, which should also grow the demand for electricity. Um, fortunately, you know. Um, the cleaner sources of electricity are getting better and cheaper all of the, all the time. So we'll see that transition uh, happen. Um, I just think that every country, I think it's obvious, and the IEA also makes it clear that every country is going to follow their own path uh, on the energy transition. Many countries will try to reach a net zero in their power system by Um, by a certain date, something between, say, 2030 and 2060, but not all countries are are prepared to do that. Um, And I think the important debate now is, particularly for sub-Saharan Africa, where the sources of finance for infrastructure are relatively limited, um, that, that we want to be sure that we're not choking off development pathways for countries 
just because of uh, of certain um, uh, climate goals, which all nations share, but everyone will have their own, you know, every country will have their own pay, pace, their own priorities. Um, and I think the recent events we've seen, particularly in Europe, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that energy security, energy reliability, and low low cost energy is a top priority for all countries. Um, and you know, countries will need governments will need to balance their climate environmental goals with other goals like job creation um, and economic growth, uh, and that very often. Uh, the short-term energy security goals will be will be given the highest priority. And I just don't think it's realistic to expect African countries to behave any differently. They also have important development, uh, economic growth, and job creation goals that will require a lot more uh, energy uh, in the near future. So I want to follow through on that, th this notion that while the, the world per se may uh, be focusing on the same North Star, the direction of travel uh, and the pace uh, sh sh should differ depending on a country's own development stage and its needs. I mean, does that mean then uh, that the tendency at the COPs to come away with these grand uh, resolutions, which uh, sub-Saharan countries and others then take home uh, in the belief that they have to oblige that agenda. I, is that flawed then? Sh should we be perhaps having a, a, a setup in the corps where actually you are looking at different uh, programs, if you wish, for different regions that then translate into different programs for different countries? No, I, I don't think so. I, look, I think the, the, the purpose of the COP is to try to generate commitments from countries to decarbonize faster. Um, and that's a, that's uh, you know that's absolutely a, a good thing. Um, it's just that when countries come to the table at the COP, they are not coming with only one goal of decarbonization in mind. They're actually coming to balance decarbonization with their other national goals. Even those countries that are the most aggressive in um, in decarbonization, say like some of the Scandinavian countries. They still are balancing their own um, their own other objectives, and I I think you could look at Norway, which is probably you know one of the most prominent environmental um, uh, governments. Uh, Norway is actually ramping up its gas production now in response to the European energy crisis, and why are they doing that? Because COP and climate and decarbonization is not Norway's only goal. Norway has lots of different goals and they try to balance those, those goals out. Um, I think what's important for African countries is that they come with a clear sense of what their own objectives are um, uh, and that they can advocate on their own behalf of what they are willing to do um, to meet their, their global climate goals, their environmental objectives, but also their job creation and development goals. I, I don't think it has to be um, a zero-sum game. Um, it's just a matter of being clear about your objectives, being clear about those trade-offs, and, and being able to articulate what, what you're going to do. I, I'd say the one thing that makes me nervous at, at COP is that you don't see um, you don't see delegations coming, let's say, equally prepared. Um, so a lot of delegations will come 
to uh, to COP and make commitments such as net zero, or they'll make certain commitments to use certain technologies and not use other technologies, um, which are completely disconnected from what their national processes uh, say they want to do in terms of industrialization, job creation, um, and uh, and economic growth. So I think it's it, it's incumbent on countries to to come fully prepared with the data, with their plans, and being able to argue their case of why the path makes sense for them. Um, it, the, otherwise, what happens is those pathways are determined by outsiders. And that yeah. is, in, in my view, completely untenable and unfair. Because what does hang over COP, um, while every country has their own path, is that the responsibility for causing climate change those responsible for emissions is extremely uneven. It's mostly, almost exclusively the rich countries, in particular, my own country, the United States, which is the largest historic emitter, um, but it's also China and Europe um, and a couple of other countries. Um, so that responsibility, I think, really needs to be the starting point, not for saying that, that countries who that didn't contribute don't have a role to play now, that all countries have a role. But uh, clearly where the, the, um, the largest proportion of the burden needs to fall on those that have caused the problem, not the opposite, which is um, that those that, have, that are the least responsible and that are suffering the most, that they should be ahead of the curve. That doesn't, that doesn't uh, make sense either logically or from an equity or justice perspective. Sure. But you, you know, uh, in a, a prior conversation with somebody else, uh, uh, they 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 put it differently. They sort of said they'll be winners or losers. But uh, I like your more pragmatic approach, which is to say, look, we know the lay of the land. We know where, who caused the problem. We we know proportionately how much we contributed. We also know that here and now, it's now Mother Earth and uh, the planet Earth's problem. Uh, having said that, I think the most important thing, and I agree with you, it's just like any negotiation. You are as strong as you are prepared. And to the extent that uh, the African countries go to COPs uh, ill-prepared to make a case, and to the extent that that case aligns to their own development goals, then of course, all will be lost. And, and I think as a citizen of Sub-Sahara, I hold my country responsible to be prepared when they go to the COPs to argue my case, not the global case. They can be a member of that global consortium if you wish, but here and now, uh, you know, I cast my vote for them. I expect them to look after my interests. And, and I think that's that's very important because I, I feel that uh, several emerging countries go there with a the sense that they have to oblige the world and, and that this is the direction of travel and they don't have a choice. But I want to come back yeah. to the point you made about uh, renewables, mm -hmm. uh, which was that uh, we, we think, you know, energy may be progressively or increasingly uh, cheaper and affordable. Uh, is this really true across the board? Because of course, in, in emerging market countries, especially Africa, um, affordability and uh, access to energy are, are one and the same. A lot of people, even if there is energy, uh, never mind the lack of infrastructure, simply cannot afford the tariffs. Is there, quite apart from cleaning the, the planet, is renewable energy going to be perhaps more affordable for sure? 
So it's a, it's a great question. And it really depends on what you're talking about because all energy is not the same. Um, and so you, it is true that if you look at the, the average levelized cost of electricity from solar and wind across the world, it's getting very cheap. It's getting cheaper on average than fossil fuels for, you know, for the marginal kilowatt hour. Um, but that does, but we have seen a very curious trend in sub-Saharan Africa, which is as countries have been putting more wind and solar into their mix, and Kenya is a good example of this, we're actually seeing tariffs not go down, but go up. Now, why is that the case? <laughs> there's, there's a couple of things. One is that, is that um, a kilowatt hour of solar electricity is not the same as a kilowatt hour of uh, geothermal or hydroelectricity. And that's because of, um, because of what's called dispatchability. You need electricity to run all the time. Uh, solar and wind run when the conditions work. Uh, are are you know are are favorable, but they don't run all the time, and so you need to um, you need to balance that with what is sometimes called firm sources or dispatchable sources of electricity. Um, so just because on average a kilowatt hour of solar is cheaper doesn't mean the entire system is necessarily getting cheaper. Secondly, sure. we've seen we've seen that the average in the world is getting a lot cheaper, but it might not be true in a lot of African markets. And there's many reasons for this, but I'll highlight two really important ones. The first is that when you when you build a solar or wind farm, almost all the cost is upfront. It's in building that farm. Whereas when you build a gas-fired power plant, almost all the cost is in paying for the fuel over time. So what that means is that for wind and solar, those are very capital expenditure heavy investments. So the cost of capital or the interest rate attached to that project really determines the cost of, of that electricity. And in Africa, interest rates are very, very high uh, relative to say Europe or the United States. Um, so in, um, in if you take two, Today, if you take two identical solar farms and you put one in the United States and one in Ghana, the one in Ghana will cost 140% more just because interest rate differences between those two projects. So yeah. high cost of capital is a reason that renewable energy is more expensive in Africa than in other places. The second is that, is that you don't have transparent competitive markets in a lot of these countries. In, in Germany or in the United States, the market for wind and solar is extremely competitive. The market prices are open. The contracts are transparent. You know exactly what the price is, who's paying for what, and where, where, you know, where those costs are going. In, a, in almost all African markets, those contracts are signed in secret. Um, they are not, uh, it's not openly, um, you know, openly competitive. And in fact, you can't find out uh, if, uh, you know, a wind or solar farm opens in your country, you can't actually find out how much the utility is paying that developer for that, um, for that, for that electricity. And that lack of transparency and competition also drives up prices. So that's why we're generally seeing global average renewable energy prices go down, but not yet seeing those benefits accrue 
uh, to a lot of African markets. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting point uh, because I think it speaks also directly to your earlier point that uh, governments just can't fly blindly into whatever conventions come out of the corps. They have to look at home. So that's you've just put on the table there one more reason why Africa might not be able to move that fast because while uh, there may be developers of these energy sources, to the extent that energy then becomes unaffordable, then Africa has shot herself in the foot because uh, it's still, for lack of a better way, the dark continent. And so one has to balance that. I, I wanted to come back uh, to the notion of gas uh, potentially being transformational uh, in terms of economic development. So, I mean, gas is only one extractive resource. You and I know that whether it is in the fossil fuel space or uh, it is in the mineral space, this is not the first time Africa has uh, been in a position in which it has resources for which there's a market. And yet those resources have not translated materially into any uh, meaningful economic development. Why, why, why should gas and the opportunities that come with uh, clean energy be different? Yeah, it's such a good and important question. And I, I think it's important first to say that not all countries in Africa have gas, but those that do, like Mozambique or Senegal or Ghana or Nigeria, they have gas resources that they want to use. Now, they could replicate the old colonial model, which is that you just export it to richer countries and you get the income. That is unfortunately uh, where it looks like a lot of countries are headed, given what's been going on in Europe. We've seen delegations from Italy, France, and Germany coming to, uh, coming to West Africa to sign long-term gas contracts. We've seen some of the long-term gas contracts going to, uh, going to Asia. Uh, now, this will generate income for those countries, um, but you're not seeing all of the downstream development effects. And this is why it's very, I think it's important to distinguish between upstream oil and gas, which is for exploration and production, and downstream use, which would be consuming that gas at home in those countries. Now, why could gas be more beneficial? Um, because gas is extremely useful uh, in multiple ways. So one is, we've talked about this a little already, is that gas can be used to generate electricity. And what's especially useful for gas is that you can flip it on and off very quickly. Uh, peaker plants go on and off. They're very cheap to build and you just use them when you need them. And when you don't need them, they're off. Um, so that is very useful, especially when paired with wind and, wind and solar. So electricity is a very useful domestic use of, of gas. But there's also other uses. One is industrial heat. A lot of industri uh, in industrial processes need heat and gas can be very useful. Fertilizer production often needs natural gas. So if you wanna ramp up your agricultural productivity and you wanna uh, your farmers to have fertilizer, natural gas can be very useful. And then of course, clean cooking. You know, One of the great development challenges in Africa is that the vast majority of families use wood or charcoal to cook. And this has awful, not just climate impacts, but local pollution impacts that affect mostly women and girls and lead to millions of premature deaths. Um, one of the easiest ways and quickest ways to transition to a cleaner cooking fuel is to move to 
uh, gas canisters. This is what India and many countries have have done. This is, you know, I cook with uh, with a gas canister on my barbecue here uh, in outside Washington D.C. Um, and that is something else that could be developed in um, in 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 particularly in West Africa uh, for for local uh, cooking. So there's lots of downstream development benefits where gas could be used at home that's entirely separate from selling that gas overseas uh, for export revenues. Mm. So uh, I, you, you mentioned quite rightly uh, the opportunities for recent discoveries in the likes of uh, Senegal and uh, the Indian Ocean countries, and, and even more recently, southwest in Namibia. Uh, and, and that uh, as uh, Europe hungers for more supply or, uh, of gas or alternative sources of supply, Africa is you know, on the offing. But I wonder what we, if we know anything about these uh, negotiations and the agreement, uh, are they competitive? Are they transparent? Or is it a race to the bottom? What do we know? Because, uh, you know, gas offtake agreements, as you know, are very, uh, you know, case by case. Uh, but do we have any sense of uh, how good the deals are and how balanced the arrangements are? So in theory, the gas should be covered by the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. So the, those details should be made public in time. Um, I personally have been focused mostly on the downstream components. So I have not been looking at whether these are these are gas deals are good um, uh, for the countries or are they just good for the buyers? I don't actually know the answer to that. That's but one fair. thing I yeah, one thing I have watched that I find worrying is that many of the same countries, including you know most of the Europeans, but especially Germany and some of the Nordics, are interested in buying African gas and developing gas markets for themselves, but they have been at the forefront of restricting finance for downstream gas in Africa. And mm. again, here, this is where the upstream-downstream distinction is very important. If, say, a country like Senegal or Nigeria wants to develop its, off its offshore gas for export, there's plenty of money available from big international investors to finance that gas infrastructure if it's going to be sold overseas to a credible offtaker. But if those same countries want to use some of their own gas at home for a power plant or fertilizer factory, those sources of finance are not available um, in the private markets, largely because the local utilities are not creditworthy. So they need some kind of development finance, let's say a loan from the World Bank or a guarantee from a bilateral creditor, like let's say the United States government. But those sources of development finance are prioritizing climate and saying, no, we don't want to finance gas projects. So what we're actually seeing is a bifurcation of international finance where there's plenty of money available for African gas if it's going to be exported to rich countries, which are those countries that cause climate change in the first place, as we previously discussed. But the finance for Africans to use their own domestic gas at home, that infrastructure finance is being severely restricted. And that is, to me, the upside down uh, version of climate justice. And many of the groups that are concerned about the so-called resource curse 
have said, you know, your earlier point, well, Africa hasn't benefited much from oil in the past. Why would we expect them to benefit from gas? It's exactly this point that when the export revenues are your only benefit, it's very hard to translate that into development benefits, which is why those worried about that should be not trying to block finance for gas projects in Africa, but actually insisting that the domestic components be financed in parallel. Yeah, I mean, it's both ironical and also, uh, to your point, uh, economically unjust, but it is also a negotiation point for the Africans at COP. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. That, that, that is exactly the sort of argument that has been put in place, that you can't constrain us both ways. You can't want us to transist. You can't want us to fire our economies uh, with clean energy sources and yet uh, uh, constrain finance in downstream, which is where the energy is unleashed. And, uh, and so I, right. I think that uh, that's exactly a, a, a one of the, the points that uh, ought to be made. But I want- she, to... Sheila, can I, can I make one more point though? I think oh. that's really important going into COP, which is the very unhelpful role of South Africa and unhelpful in that South Africa is so different from every other country because South Africa is a large emitter and it's a coal-based economy. Other than you know, a, a, you know, one or two power plants in Zimbabwe or in Botswana, there's really no coal concern in the rest of Africa. But South Africa is such an important international actor that South Africa's need to transition off of coal is having an un unintended negative effect on other African countries, which are not large emitters, but are kind of bundled together where South Africa is seen as a representative of the entire region. And even a big country like Nigeria, which is an oil and gas producer, they are not a significant emitter of CO2. They're tiny. They're less than one ton per capita, where the United States is about 15 tons per capita. Um, so people are, I think, because of South Africa, as they see South Africa as an example of the rest of the region, they're worried that everyone could become an emitter like South Africa. So they want to restrict gas or all fossil fuels. But even Nigeria is not going to become a major emitter. Nigeria's plans right now are to build about 10 gigawatts of downstream gas-fired power. And that would be to balance a mostly solar-based system. Now, 10 gigawatts might sound like a lot, but I'm in my country, United States, we have 550 gigawatts of gas-based power. And we're building 27 gigawatts in just the next two years. And Nigeria wants to just build 10. So again, the scale is completely out of whack because people aren't seeing Africa in the context of global emissions and what Africa's own plans are. If you look at that, you actually should not really be too concerned about it. And again, South Africa is just a terrible proxy for the rest of the continent. So it's another reason for African governments to advocate on their own behalf more forcefully and in future COPs. Yes, I I uh, really agree with you because I, I myself was quite shocked. Uh, first at uh, South Africa just going it alone and negotiating this 82 billion US dollar thing. I, I thought it was uh, a terrible gesture of lack of... Uh, solidarity 
with the few started countries like Botswana that are entirely dependent on thermal coal and, and now have to stand alone and face the entire world without the support of uh, Big Brother South Africa. I, I was shocked uh, that that happened. But of course, the irony is no sooner did uh, the South African government uh, enter into this arrangement with the Europeans and others, uh, Europe and Germany, among others, have now gone back to thermal coal. So I, I'm not That's sure right. what the lessons are for South Africa there, but, but I do hope somebody uh, is taking a hard look at uh, the, if you wish, endurance potentially of this arrangement, yeah. because so far they are, they are nothing but uh, credible. Uh, and they speak to your point, to the double standards uh, that we see, whether it's in the finance space, the energy mix space, uh, and the transparency space. But here's my, my last question to you. Um, sure, uh, countries like Botswana, uh, of whom I'm a citizen, uh, live on the uh, margins, if you wish, of the regional economy. But of course, in your part of the world, uh, the United States is the big brother. And, and uh, the current administration has recently reached out uh, with what is called the uh, US uh, strategy for Africa and, and also has introduced this inflation reduction uh, uh, bill. I just wanted to ask you, do you see any opportunities there for Africans? And as they, the uh, heads of states travel to Washington in October, in the gas and energy transition space, what are some of the issues that ought to be put on the table to try, among others, to address this uh, injustice, historic and current? Yeah, so there, there's actually a lot in both the, uh, the, the new White House Africa strategy and in the in Inflation Reduction Act for Africa. It might not seem immediately obvious, but... <clears throat> In the strategy, there is a short section, and I should say a strategy is not, you know, don't, ex the strategy does not contain funding pledges or anything like that. That's not what a strategy is. It's supposed to provide a North Star for the U.S. government to all get on the same page and move in the same direction. But in that strategy, which is now public, you'll see there's a very deliberate reference to meeting Africa where it is on energy and climate change and saying that it will work with Africa on gas to power. That was a very deliberate uh, inclusion. Uh, and this is, it does represent a shift to being more flexible uh, on gas financing with uh, in Africa, which I think is very positive. Um, overall, the strategy is really about about listening to what our African allies uh, prioritize and making it a two-way a two partnership, not a one-way partnership, which unfortunately has been the history. And so I do think the strategy provides some important, um, some important new guidelines. We'll see how that is implemented in practice. The, the Inflation Reduction Act is mostly domestically focused in the US but it has a lot of investments in new energy technologies that will eventually benefit uh, Africa. I'm, I'm very uh, confident that that will be the case. So as things like green hydrogen, which I know uh, Namibia is very interested in, already has, I think, a partnership with Germany on, uh, that this will invest in, in green hydrogen. This will invest in storage technologies, which will also help 
Africa exploit cheaper wind and solar in the future. Um, it will invest in new transmission technologies, which will help Africa. Uh, it will also invest in next generation nuclear uh, technology, which we're already seeing quite a lot of interest from Africa in next generation nuclear. Now by next generation, I don't mean the big old plants that you know Russia um, or uh, you know France is, has today, but these are smaller modular, uh, reactors that are far safer and cheaper and more suitable to emerging markets like uh, like in sub-Saharan Africa. So I think as those investments come through the pipeline, th there will be a lot of benefits for Africa. We're probably talking at least a decade away, but that will that will be that will be positive. And then just one last point I would make. I, I know we criticize the South Africans for being um, a poor representative of the rest of the continent. But I do think the deal that South Africa has struck, which is called a Just Energy Transition Partnership with the US, UK, Germany, and the European Union, while that is a deal that's very specific to South Africa, it does provide a model for partnerships to help generate support for Africa's energy transition um, in other markets. And this is where African governments are going to have to come with their plans, with their objectives, and say, this is what we want to do. This is where we need partnership. We just saw last week the Nigerian government have a public release of their energy transition plan out to 2060. I'm sure the Nigerians will be looking for a similar package as to what the South Africans got. And I would expect other countries uh, to start to make those same uh, proposals as well. But it, the, the onus will be on governments to get their plans in order, determine what they want to do, and then come and make a, make a solid pitch. Fantastic. Well, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Todd. It was really lovely uh, speaking with you. I appreciate your uh, insights. Thank you for joining the Sheila Karma Extractive Podcast. Thank you for having me and thank you for keeping resource governance and all of these issues, you know, alive in the in, in the international debates.